want to follow the passage that we're looking over today. We are in the book of Luke, chapter 19, verses 1, 1 through 10. Luke 19, 1 through 10, if you want to follow along here today. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see Jesus, was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today's salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost." Well, ever since I was a kid, I, I have never been the tallest guy in the room. Not always the shortest guy in the room, although one time I, I was rooming with some guys in college, and I had pointed out that I was shorter than them, and they all gathered around me as I looked up to them, and they said, oh, wow, you are really short, aren't you? So that was one time I really was the shortest guy in the room, but I've never been the tallest guy in the room, and so I've always been drawn to famous people that are, we'll say, my height or uh, a, little, uh, a little shorter than me, especially in sports. I am fascinated with athletes that are in that five-foot range, so to speak, but they're competing against guys that are like six-foot-five, six-foot-nine, depending on which sport you're in. And I remember, uh, well, I not just remember, I mean... Uh, We've got a list of athletes right here that, that I've been very impressed with. And I, just to give you an idea of where their height is, one of them that I love watching, I watched him uh, win the World Series a few years ago in baseball, Jose Altuve. Does anybody know that name? Jose Altuve, he plays for the Astros. He is only, let me check my notes here, five foot six inches tall. Now, you talk about a small strike zone. That guy has a small strike zone, but he's able to hit it out of the park. So to give you an idea of how tall he is, right there. So him and I are about the same height. He's a little bit shorter, all right? My favorite NFL player uh, growing up, I, I know you guys love him for the Detroit Lions, Barry Sanders. I loved watching him. And when you consider he was only five foot, eight inches tall, I know how to work these. Just a little bit taller than me, just about by a half an inch, something like that. Five foot, eight inches tall. Keep in mind, the athletes in the NFL are probably about that tall. All right, so they're about that tall. That's about five foot five, five foot six. Barry Sanders was about this tall. 
I loved watching him grow up, but my favorite player of all time didn't even play for my favorite team, but I would watch him play basketball, and he was the shortest basketball player ever, Muggsy Bogues. Did anybody ever watch Muggsy Bogues play? That guy was awesome. And you know why he was so awesome? Because he was such a short player, and somehow he got past these guys that were six foot, six foot five. Muggsy Bogues was five foot, three inches tall. If any of you feel like you're not the tallest guy in the room, I want you to remember Muggsy Bogues is probably shorter than you at five foot, three inches tall, just about right there. And I would watch Muggsy Bogues play, and I would think to myself, Man, he can play in the NBA. Maybe one day I can play in the NBA. Turns out I'm probably a little too tall for the NBA. I never made it. was a little bit taller than Muggsy. If I would have been short like him, maybe I could have made it. But I've always been drawn to these people that, that uh, somehow were able to make this fame because psychology teaches that people tend to be drawn to tall people. That's why when you see presidential debates, they look like they're the same height. They're not the same height on the stand. They just add a platform underneath the short guy so they look like the same height because if you watch the debate, you would be drawn to the one that looked a little bit taller. I've always been drawn to the athletes, the celebrities, all these guys that are shorter. And so I think that's why I'm drawn here in Luke chapter 19 to Zacchaeus. Because Luke makes it a point that Zacchaeus was short in stature. Now, part of me wonders, why would he point this out? He could have just said, well, Zacchaeus couldn't see through the crowds. But Luke is a specific writer. Luke likes to give details in his gospel. And so he gives this detail about Zacchaeus. We don't know how tall he would have been, but... Most scholars think that if he was called short in stature compared to the people in his day in ancient Palestine, he probably would have been about five foot tall. So if you consider that in America today, people are about, while men, we're talking about men here, about five foot ten inches tall, this is about how tall Zacchaeus might have been in this story. But that's not the only detail that Luke gives about Zacchaeus. What we know about him is that he's the chief tax collector. The tax collectors were a despised group of people among the Jewish community because oftentimes tax collectors had a reputation of ripping off the people that they were collecting taxes from. And what would happen is the Roman government would contract out various people in communities to be the tax collectors. So the Roman government would initiate a tax, would go into communities and ask people, would you be a tax collector for this community? And so for, for Zacchaeus, he would have been a Jewish man collecting taxes for the Roman government or from his community to the Roman government. And so his fellow Jewish community would have despised him just for being a tax collector. Well, what we find out in this story is he wasn't just a tax collector. He was the chief tax collector in a very rich city, Jericho, which means that more likely than not, he was not only defrauding people, but he was overseeing tax collectors that were defrauding people. And so all that money that was defrauding his own community was being funneled to him, and he was able to make his wealth by doing that to his fellow brothers and sisters. So he would have been a despised person in Jericho. 
Not only that, he's a despised person in Jericho. He's the chief tax collector. But he hears that this prophet, this teacher, Jesus, is coming through town. And there's an interest that sparks in him of wanting to see Jesus. And we know that wherever Jesus goes in his ministry, crowds begin to form. People start to come because there's something about Jesus Christ that others find interesting. They hear that he heals people. They hear that he challenges the religious authorities. They hear that nobody's been able to ask him a question that stumped him. He has an answer for everything. And so Zacchaeus is hearing that Jesus is coming through town, and he wants to see him. At this point in the story, we we don't know what his motivation exactly is to see Jesus. Some people suggest maybe his motivation was that he wanted to hear if the stories were true. Does Jesus really challenge the religious authority? Does Jesus really teach from the scripture with authority that nobody else has? Maybe Zacchaeus was climbing that tree to see Jesus because he wanted to see Jesus heal somebody. Maybe Zacchaeus was climbing that tree because he knew that Jesus might challenge him in being a tax collector. We don't know, but we do know that as Zacchaeus is trying to make his way through the crowds, he's not able to. The crowds aren't letting him into Jesus, and he can't see over them, which is what motivates him to go on ahead and climb this tree. I don't know if you've ever climbed a tree, but it's not something we really do as adults, right? I'm afraid to ask if there's any adults here that have just climbed a tree out in public. When I was in seminary, uh, I worked security for the campus, which really just meant at a certain time, I would go around and lock the doors. And I had a really big flashlight to protect myself. But I remember one time I was walking through campus and I was hearing something and I just, I couldn't make out where it was. So I just kept walking, locking doors, and and every time I walked through a certain spot on campus, I was hearing just talking, and I couldn't find anybody. And then finally, my eyes went up, and there were two students, one in each tree, just chatting. They were both on a branch, just chatting to one another, and I had to pull out my security authority and say, can you guys get down? We're adults here. You don't need to be climbing trees. But I would imagine for somebody like Zacchaeus, this might have been a shameful thing for him to do because he's a a publican. He's He's an authority figure in his community. He should have the right to tell people to move out of their way, but somehow he doesn't. So he climbs a tree like a kid just in order to see Jesus. And what happens when Jesus walks through that community? Who's the first person he talks to? Zacchaeus. Not only does he talk to Zacchaeus, he knows who Zacchaeus is. He calls him by name. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry down from there. This is the sign of a great prophet. And Jesus actually does this a lot in his ministry, where when he meets somebody, presumably for the first time, he tells that person things about them that nobody else knows. He meets the woman at the well in, John, I think it's John chapter 8, and he knows about her married life. He knows about her history with various men, and he's able to speak into that in her life. When he meets Peter, he, he talks about casting his nets on the other side, and Peter realizes, wow, this man is a prophet. We see in John chapter 1, when he calls Philip, Philip goes to get his brother Nathaniel, and when Nathaniel shows up, Jesus says, I saw you at the fig tree before you came to meet me. 
So Jesus says things to people about people he already knows. He doesn't need to meet anybody. He already knows who they are, and he does this to Zacchaeus. He calls Zacchaeus down from the tree as if he walked into that community just to meet with him specifically. So, And not only does Jesus do this, not only does he name Zacchaeus, tells him to come down and meet with him, but then Jesus does probably one of the most scandalous things in his ministry. He invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. The reason I say this is scandalous is because, as we already mentioned, he was a tax collector, not just a tax collector, a chief tax collector. That alone means that the Jewish community does not want to associate with him. He's defrauding his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. So for Jesus to meet with Zacchaeus gives the sense of approval. It, it, it sort of the crowd is reading this as, whoa, wait a second, Jesus, are you telling Zacchaeus that it's okay for him to collect taxes for, from us, for the Roman government? Are you approving of his sins? And not only that, when Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house, he's potentially putting himself in harm's way. The reason I say this is Jewish law says that if you enter an unclean man's house, you've got to go through ritual washings. So the crowd sees Jesus as a teacher of the law, as a prophet of God, willingly putting himself in a sinner's household. They can't believe this. The religious authorities, like the Pharisees, had very strict rules about whose house you could enter. And you had to be very careful if you walked into somebody's house and they were a sinner, you had to not touch anything. When you left the house, you don't take food with you, you don't eat anything they give you, because you don't know if it's been sacrificed to an idol, you don't know if it's gone through the proper washings, you may not know what animal it's come from. And then when you leave the house, you have to go through a ritual washing to make sure you're clean enough so that you can enter the temple. The reason this is scandalous is Jesus doesn't care about that. Jesus is not concerned about Zacchaeus' sin rubbing off on him. Instead, it's the other way around. He is concerned about his own cleanliness, Jesus' cleanliness, rubbing off on Zacchaeus. Jesus' concern in this relationship is he knows the wrong that Zacchaeus has committed. He knows that he's defrauded his fellow brothers and sisters. He knows that he is not a good Jewish man. But that's why Jesus wants to go to his house. He wants to make him a good man. He wants to cleanse him, not just make him a good man. He's a dead man. He wants to make Zacchaeus alive. He wants the spirit in Zacchaeus. So he invites invites himself over to his house, which is a sign of honor in the ancient times. When guests would come through, you would want them to stay in your house and share your food with them because then you were considered an honorable home. So when Jesus comes through, he doesn't even let Zacchaeus invite him. He says, no, I'm going to stay at your house. You get to feed me. We get to share a meal together. And the crowds don't like this. The crowds are upset that Jesus is having this kind of relationship with Zacchaeus. And they're grumbling about it, and they say, is this man really going to eat with a sinner, with a tax collector? And when Zacchaeus hears this, he realizes he needs to repent. 
And he does so in front of the crowds, in front of Jesus. He promises to give half of his wealth to the poor. And if he's defrauded anybody, he's going to repay them four times the amount. Now, when we look at this, I don't know about you, but when I first read it, I'm like, oh, just half? (laughs) You're only going to give half of your money to the poor? That's kind of convenient. You know, you defrauded all these people. But when you sit back and you think about the basic math, of all of this, Zacchaeus is promising all of his wealth away. Zacchaeus is promising, first of all, half of what he owns is automatically going to go to the poor. But then he says, anybody I've defrauded, I will pay back four times as much. So what's probably going through Zacchaeus' mind is he's trying to make restitution in the best way that he knows how. First, he'll get rid of half of his money. That automatically goes to those in need. And then he's thinking, what's left over I'm going to use to pay back anybody I've defrauded, and I'm going to try to pay them back more than what I've defrauded them in. So by the end of the day, it's possible Zacchaeus is really promising all of his money to go away. Now this is a big deal in Luke's gospel because Luke puts this story right after another story about a rich man who wants to follow Jesus. If you go back to chapter 18, uh, 18 verses 18 through 27, we have the story of the rich young ruler. If you know anything about that story, this man comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the rich young ruler says, well, I've kept the law. I've kept those laws. I've kept the whole law. Do I have eternal life? And Jesus says to him, no, sell all you have, give to the poor, then follow me. And what does the rich young ruler do? He walks away brokenhearted because he loved his riches more than he loved Jesus. And Luke is centering Zacchaeus' story right after this one to show the possibility of repentance to show the possibility that whatever Jesus calls you to do, wherever he calls you to go, he will give you the power to follow him. He will call you and you are able to give him everything and run after him. Zacchaeus is doing that in this passage. He's giving away all that he has in order to be with Jesus. And again, the crowds are grumbling about this, but what does Jesus offer to Zacchaeus in front of everybody? salvation. He says, salvation has come to this household, or or, salvation has come to this man. He too is a son of Abraham. And Jesus makes this statement, he has come to seek and save that which was lost. The point he's making to the crowds in this passage is, Zacchaeus is the very kind of person that he has come to search for and that he's come to save. Zacchaeus, the one that everybody's despised, is the very person that Jesus walked into Jericho and said, I want to eat at his house. I want to save him. So what do we do with this passage? Where do we go from here? Well, first of all, there's a basic truth that this passage points out that I think is very important for us to understand. And that is our salvation or or our relationship with God, the forgiveness of sins from God, That begins and ends with God himself. Our salvation, our forgiveness of sins, our friendship with God, our being children with God, our having eternal life in heaven, that starts with Jesus. Even though the passage 
starts with Zacchaeus looking for Jesus, the passage really doesn't start with that. We just see it that way. We just read it that way. What we find out is Jesus was already thinking of Zacchaeus before he arrived in town. Jesus was already searching for Zacchaeus so that he could save them. The same goes for you and me and anybody out there that we share the gospel with. Jesus has already seen our needs before we've had them. God has already provided a way to save us before we've even sought after him. It begins with Jesus, and then it also ends with Jesus. Jesus is the one that declares salvation over Zacchaeus. Jesus is the one that saves him, that calls him to repentance, that calls him to a new life. The same goes for us, the same goes for anybody that we encounter that needs to know who Jesus is. God's already been there. God's already working in their heart, waiting for somebody to share the gospel with them, using you to speak the name of Jesus into their life. And it ends with Jesus. It's not up to us to save anybody. It's up to Jesus. So when we go out and we share the gospel, or when the gospel is shared in our life, it really starts with him, and it ends with him. We can rest assured that he already sees the needs in our community. We just need to know where he's going and follow after him. And I leave us with two questions as we go out into the world, as we go out into this community. The first question that I have for us is, are we acting as the crowds in any way? There's really three characters going on in this story. Jesus and Zacchaeus, who we've already talked about, but then there's also the crowds. Do you notice that the same people that were keeping Zacchaeus from seeing Jesus are the same people that are upset that Jesus sees Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus isn't able to see over the crowds. He's not able to get in the middle of them. They're keeping him from a relationship with Jesus. And then when Jesus finally meets with them, they're upset about it. The question we have is, are we being a bridge? All right, Are we being used by God to share Christ with anybody? Or are we ignoring that? Are we walking away from it? Is, is there a sense that we don't really care? I think back to the story of Jonah. If anybody knows that story, uh, it's only about four chapters long, but in the story of Jonah, he's a prophet, and God doesn't call him to prophesy to Israel or his people. He calls him to prophesy to Nineveh. And he disobeys, he flees, he's put overboard on a ship, and, and he's swallowed by a big fish. He repents of his sin, the fish spits him out onto Nineveh's land, and so he goes and preaches to Nineveh. And what do you know it? Nineveh repents of their sin and follows after God. And what happens to Jonah? At the end of the book, he goes out of Nineveh, sits down, and he waits for God to destroy Nineveh. Why does he do that? Well, because he doesn't like Nineveh. He doesn't want God to save Nineveh. And he's upset because God is saving Nineveh. God is calling Nineveh into a relationship with him. So are, are there any places where we may be acting like the crowds, where we're afraid to share the gospel because, well, I don't really like that person? Are we afraid to get into that kind of scandalous relationship, which is the next question. Are there any relationships that we've kept ourselves from because we're afraid? Because maybe 
the person isn't quite like us, or I have a hard time getting along with them. I'm not saying to get into an abusive relationship. I'm not saying to get into a relationship where somebody can hurt you, or a relationship where somebody can negatively influence your relationship with God. That's a different topic. But is there anyone out there that we've ignored, we've stepped away from because, well, they're just not my kind of people? God is calling us to meet with them just as he met with Zacchaeus. I had a foster home when when my wife and I were licensing foster homes. We'd go meet with these different families, and we would have to go over a whole inventory of questions and ask them about how they raised their family, how they were raised, and what they're going to do with foster kids when they're in the household. And I had one family, they they were, (laughs) you ever just meet that family and, and you're just like, man, the Brady Bunch were real. This would be them. You know, th- this was that family. They already adopted six kids out of foster care. Two of them were international kids. They, they were technically, by the state of Michigan standards, at capacity. They weren't allowed to adopt anymore. But when I went and met with them, they said, well, we just can't get over it. We, we just, every time we pray, we feel like God is calling us to bring in one more foster child. We just feel like God is calling us to help one more family. And so I asked the question, well, how do you guys do working with families that want to receive their child back? And so, you know, they they might be going through a hard time and you've got to pick the kids up from visits or drop them off. And I remember the dad saying something that always stuck with me. He said, you know, my parents weren't perfect. And I know I'm not perfect. But they raised me to move towards people that are hurting. And he said, oftentimes it's the people that are hurting that try to hurt the most. So he said, when we've worked with foster kids and their families, we actually try to move closer to them because we know they're going through a difficult time. And we want to be in that relationship. Man, I heard that and... I was convicted, man. All of a sudden, I realized the number of people I had written off and stayed away from because, well, they're just, yeah, I don't really like them. I don't get along with them. But if there's anything this passage teaches, it's that God is already going after those people. Are we going along with them? Are we bringing people into that relationship with Jesus? So as we leave this place, let's go and let's find those people that are seeking after Jesus. Let's find those people that Jesus is searching for and enter into a relationship with them so they can hear more about the relationship they can have with God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the salvation that you offer. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for calling us into your kingdom. And now, Lord, as always, we ask that you would send us into the world to call others into your kingdom. We know that you're with us. We know, Holy Spirit, that you go before us. We know, Lord Jesus, that every time we speak your name, there is power, there is love, and that the gospel is proclaimed. So, God, we pray that you bring us to those people that need to hear your word, and you would give us the strength to speak it. Amen.